Well, good morning. We're looking at the book of Ruth this morning, and uh, you'll find it on page 222 in the Pew Bibles, the book of Ruth. And I'm going to ask you to stand again as we come now to God's Word. We're going to read the whole chapter. It is one of the greatest stories ever told, the book of Ruth, and it deserves to be heard and read aloud. And this chapter sets the stage for this story. And uh, the Bible is full of different kinds of literature, different genres, and one of uh, those uh, types of literature is narrative, story. God communicates to us through a story here. And so let's, let's hear that story. Let's pray as we prepare to hear God's Word. Father, would you uh, speak to us through your Word, uh, this story here about Ruth and the hope of the gospel that is communicated through this story. Would it thrill our hearts? God, would you open up our hearts to hear what it is that you have to say to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, friends, Ruth chapter 1 and beginning at verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Marlon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years. And both Marlon and Chilion died, so that the, women, the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughter-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth clung to her, and she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said to her, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people 
shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Do please sit down. I want you to try and use your imagination this morning to, to picture the, the story here and imagine what's, what's going on. Think of it perhaps a little bit like Downton Abbey. Do we have any fans of Downton Abbey here this morning? One or two? I saw the first season and it was quite good. And uh, you can pillar me afterwards if you feel it's much better than quite good. But anyway... Imagine a time when there were aristocrats, as it were, and yet there was a crisis looming in the background, and, and, and there you are, the sea of crisis, but in the midst, a sort of calm of privilege. Imagine a time a bit like that, or perhaps another period piece, a Jane Austen chick flick, or even perhaps Twilight, I don't know. See, the time when the judges judged, this is in the days when the judges ruled or the judges judged, that time, I want you to use your imagination to get into this story, that time was far from stable. Look at it like the civil war period in Israel's history. It, it was, or, or perhaps the Wild West, if you like. There was blood and mayhem and chaos. There was no law, no order no king. But then out of that period, somehow or other, a king arose, and the Bible tells that story. First came Saul. He didn't last too long. Then came David. And the book of Ruth tells the background to David's family tree. If you look right up to the end of the book of Ruth, so if you go to chapter 4, you can see there's a genealogy there. And the genealogy goes through the ancestors to David, and the last word in the book in English and in Hebrew is David, David. And so this book is telling us the background to uh, Ruth's, uh, to David's family tree and how Ruth fits into that. It's said in the time of the judges, how on earth did this great king arise out of this chaos period? How do you answer that question? And there's this aristocratic family, the Ephrathites of Bethlehem. People disagree as to exactly what that means, the Ephrathites. But uh, in my mind, it was a bit like the true blue Bethlehem clan, the Vanderbilts or Rockefellers, perhaps, you see. 
And uh, we don't know when this book was written. No one really knows, though it was set in the time of Judges. But uh, I imagine something like this, that David has arrived, and, and yet as the gutter press go to work on his private family history, a few skeletons begin to fall out of the closet. Did you know that when he was on the run from Saul, he went to Moab, the enemy territory? Did you know that he left his father and mother there to be taken, of by, uh, taken care of by the king of Moab? Did you know that one of his female ancestors was a Moabitess? You know, those women who seduced Israel. If the tabloid press had really gone to town, they might have begun a Twitter campaign with, you know, hashtag bad girls of David, you know, or something. Because these Moabites were were not um, uh, without their uh, controversy. They they had been banned from the Israelite community. They worshipped a god called Chemosh, who who was known to be one who wanted... uh, children to be sacrificed. And you want David as your king? Perhaps the really scurrilous even dug up some other family dirt from his genealogy. Way back in their family history, there was another bad girl, Rahab, the prostitute of Jericho. Lots of hits on badgirlsofdavid.com. And of course, though, as Christians reading this Bible, we read the Old Testament as Christians. As Christians reading this Bible, we know that not only do these names appear in David's genealogy, they also appear in Jesus's. It is a kind of Bayo tapestry of grace. It's a wonderful story, the book of Ruth. It's, it's worth just reading at a setting from beginning to end. A wonderful short story, a swashbuckling yarn. The greatest romantic short story perhaps ever written. But what is it about? What is it saying? What it's saying is that it's never too late to be used by God, to, to return to God. And that particular word, return, is repeated over and over again in this first chapter in the original. It's 12 times, in fact. 12 times. In just 20 or so verses. Return, return, return. What is the story about this first chapter? It's about going, they left, and then coming back again. And so what it's saying to us is you can come back. And it's telling us that in, in, in three different ways uh, that we can return to God. It describes leaving, first of all, and how they left in this story for understandable but poor reasons. Look down with me at verses 1 to 5. And again, I want you to use your imagination this morning to get into the story. They that you can see that originally it seems as if they only intended to relocate temporarily. They sojourn in Moab. That's a sort of word for resident alien there. They're traveling over there. They, they go there for a little while. They have some of the restricted rights that were allowed for a resident alien in the Israelite community and perhaps also in Moab too. But soon enough, not only do they sojourn, they remain 
there, they settle down. Why did they go? Understandable reasons, but poor. They go for political and economic reasons. The government was in crisis. It was in the days that the judges judged. Uh, This is a time when there was sporadic, charismatic leadership that occasionally rose up, but there was a general background of regular banditry. And there was also a particular economic crisis. We're not told why, but there was famine. And together, these two things were so bad that even at Bethlehem, literally Bethlehem means the house of bread. Even Bethlehem, this place which was surrounded by fertile fields and grapes and olives, and yet there was no bread in the house of bread. It was so bad it even affected the aristocracy, these Ephrathites who had been in Jerusalem all the way back to the time of the burial of Rachel. Even they were affected. The long time and uh, the long-term residents who'd been there for years and years and years, even they were affected by the political and economic situation. So they move, they have the resources to relocate, they are out of there. Understandable reasons. See, people leave God, leave church for understandable reasons. Perhaps someone said something hurtful to you. Perhaps someone did something wrong. Perhaps they just don't like the music, maybe. They don't like the decor. Understandable, perhaps, but in the end, even, even such a serious thing as economic and political situations, poor reasons. You can see here that there's no record that they ask God about their move. They do not pray. There's no spirituality at work, no piety. Even the names seem to suggest this fading faith. Naomi suggests sweetness. And Elimelech, my God, is king. But the names they give their children mean things like sick and weak. (laughs) They seem unintentionally to be expressing the the weakening and sickening of their faith by the names they choose for their children. What's more, they do go to Moab, a convenient place to go to perhaps, maybe the closest place where there was bread, those fields of Moab, an elevated plateau just around the Dead Sea, which because of the topography would have rain when Bethlehem did not have rain, a place still farmed for wheat, understandable to go there, easy to go there. But Moab, Moab was where Hamash was worshipped. Moab was where Israel had compromised. Moab was their enemy. It would be like someone leaving America to go to Germany in World War II. Or someone leaving church to go to a mosque to escape economic hardship or political disturbance. Understandable, but poor reasoning. And in fact, they go and they begin straight away to find out what a poor idea it was, what a bad idea it was. The Rockefellers of Westchester County end up sharecropping in White Plains, Georgia. First, Elimelech dies. 
And you wonder whether with this idea of David, the king, in the background, that the idea of my God is king, is, is, is they fear in the story somehow dying out with Elimelech who dies. Then they, uh, they took Moabite women, the children, as their wives and further compromised. But a joyful moment, a brief wedding happiness, and then they die. The men have died. And Naomi is left, verse 5. Almost nameless now. She is just the woman left over. One commentator remarks that if no man has ever suffered like Job, then no woman has ever suffered like Naomi. To lose her sons, to lose her husband, to be a foreigner in a foreign land. Nameless almost. And then in the story, as you look over the horizon of the narrative, grace is just over the next hill. Because she does return. She does return. So first, leaving for understandable but poor reasons. Second, returning even though Naomi had mixed reasons. Now this then in the story is verses 6 through to 14. So look down with me now at that part. And you can see there that her reasons for returning are somewhat good and somewhat mediocre. And again, the word here, return, occurs 12 times. And she urges her daughters-in-law, she even actually switches to call them daughters, a closer term of affection, her daughters. She urges them to go back to Moab, to not stay with her. And so Naomi is a little bit mixed in her thinking here, it seems. And Naomi returns, really, because she has nothing else to do. Verse 6, then she returns. She stands up like, I've got nothing else I can do. I'm going home. Now, she does return because she hears that the Lord has visited his people. And that word visit is a word with rich theological heritage, it would have reminded the uh, biblically astute Hebrew reader of God watching out for his people when he saw them in slavery in Egypt and then visiting them with uh, salvation and rescue. So she seems, she hears, she feels that God is doing something. God is on the move. Perhaps a new judge has been raised up. And so there's a spirituality at work there. But then even her reasons then are still mixed, for God has visited his people. But what she focuses on is the food that has returned, you see. Very sort of practical, isn't it? Now, you and I often have mixed reasons for doing good things, for returning. And so it's encouraging to see that Naomi does have mixed reasons. Naomi did not come back home banging her tambourine and dancing for joy. No, when she finally arrives in Bethlehem, she says uh, to everyone, she went away full, meaning, I think, the riches she had when she left. But she came back empty. Uh, she, she, she's bitter, she says. She even seems to attribute this problem to God, almost suggesting it's, it's God's fault, not hers. She's very mixed in her rationale for returning. But she comes back. See, what matters in the end is not how or in what attitude that you come back to God, but that you come back. 
God is the kind of God who will take you even if you come back bitter. But come back. Bitter if you are. Empty, perhaps. But 12 times, over and over again, is repeated this refrain in this chapter. Return, return, return. Return. You may have had understandable reasons for leaving God. Return. Now we come to the most important part of the story in some ways of the whole book and one which resonates in many, many different aspects with the communion table that we'll be celebrating later in the service. The most remarkable moment in the romance of Ruth, verses 19 to 20, uh, 15 to 22, especially verses 16 and 17. And it is really truly remarkable here, Ruth, and how she refuses to be put off. And so there are these three reasons that this passage is telling us to return. For understandable but poor reasons, they left. Returning even if it is for mixed reasons. You see, Naomi had mixed reasons for returning, but she, she came back. And then we have this wonderful moment of Ruth refusing to be put off. Somehow she discerns that God is the kind of God who is the God of grace. That as Naomi comes back bitter, empty, that she will still be welcomed. <laughs> God sprays grace around, not, not like a miser, just a little bit, but like with a fire hose, even for Naomi. And Ruth, she will not be turned away. Look at verses 16 and 17. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people, my people, your God, my God. Now, it is true, as many people have noticed, that Ruth, the Moabitess, is still a little bit blurred in her theological thinking here. The same word that she uses for God is the word that is used a little bit earlier for gods. It's possible that uh, Ruth doesn't yet know too much about the God of the covenant of Chesed and of the teaching of the Scriptures and the law. Even in her, uh, her, uh, her words here, she, she doesn't start with God. She starts with Naomi, and then the people of Naomi, and then God. It, it is a, a germinal faith, a small faith, but it's still faith. Look at verse 17 in this vow that she makes that uh, God would strike her down if she doesn't fulfill her determination, if she's determined not to be put off, she inserts into the vow a kind of classic Old Testament vow that you found in various places. She inserts into it the name of Yahweh, the covenant God. Perhaps Ruth has heard Naomi pray. Perhaps Ruth has heard of the God of Naomi. Perhaps Naomi has been witnessing to Ruth. She knows about Yahweh not Hemosh, and she's going to return. 
But what is remarkable, though there is content to her faith, I think, what is remarkable is not so much the small amount of content that we can discern when we put it under a microscope, but the sheer determination. She clings to Naomi. Can you see her actually sort of grasping her? Naomi saw she was determined. <laughs> yeah. Seems to me that that, that, that phrase there, determined, does, isn't, Naomi isn't just saying she has seen that Ruth has made up her mind. She is seeing that Ruth is that kind of character. She has that kind of loyalty. She is a determined person, and she's expressing it at this moment. And, of course, the whole story of Ruth will show how Ruth will stick to Naomi, to bless Naomi. She's the iron lady of faith, I suppose you might say. This refusal to be put off in order to return, 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 is actually in some ways the whole message of this passage. When you read this passage carefully, you can see there's a kind of binary function going on, a choice that is always going on. There is Moab and there is Bethlehem. There is Chemosh and there is Yahweh. There is Orpah and there is Ruth. Orpah, of course, was turned back to Moab. She listened to the good arguments that Naomi made, that she would never marry one of Naomi's children, that Naomi was empty, that she was too old to have another child, even if she should start that very evening. There are lots of sort of rather unnerving aspects of the book of Ruth, suggesting things that we might not suggest in church, you know. Even I should start tonight, she says to Orpah, you know. She has nothing to offer them, and Orpah goes back to find a man. Understandable reason for leaving. But Ruth would not. Why not? Where you go, I will go. Your people, my people. Your God, my God. She is determined. Sometimes it takes that, you know. It takes standing up in the middle of the night and surveying the situation and just saying, God... I'm going to do it. That really is faith. Clinging on. Your God, my God, your people, my people. Here I stand, as Luther put it. Being all in. And so they came back. I love the little phrase, as the people see Naomi. Perhaps Naomi was a rather famous figure in the little town of Bethlehem, and so they noticed that she came back. And perhaps they are rather expecting that Naomi would come as she had gone with the great fanfare of the wealthy. But instead she does not. She comes back empty, and they say, uh, This Naomi? In other words, My dear, what happened to you? And then there's the strange significance of the names in this chapter is underlined by Naomi, who says, Call me not sweet, but Mara, meaning bitter. 
And yet even there, there's a little reminder, isn't there, of a sort of biblical echo of another woman in the Bible, a little-known person called Mary. Now, her bitterness was real, yet she returned, and it would become sweet. Return, return, return. Come ye poor, come ye weak, come ye lonely, come ye aristocratic and wealthy. Come ye nameless. She almost loses her name in this journey. It's a story, as J.R.R. Tolkien might put it, of there and back again. Return. You say, what will happen if you do? What will happen if this morning I make a commitment, like Ruth, to be all in, everything on the line? Your people, my people, your God, my God, here I stand. What will happen if I do that? We're going to see the story. It's a wonderful story to unfold. Romance, marriage, intrigue, twists of fortune under God's providence. Dubious clandestine dating late at night. But right now, in this chapter in the story, all we have is Ruth and Naomi and the barley harvest. Now, they will be fertile. <laughs> the fields will ripen. And having returned, they will rejoice. Oh, yes. Let's pray together. Well, thank you for your grace that means that we can return. We pray as we come now to communion that uh, again we would return to you, that we would leave the fields of Moab and come back to Bethlehem. We thank you for your grace that makes that possible. We thank you for the loving kindness that can turn bitterness into sweetness. And we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.